Blessed are you who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Please be seated. Your life comes to an end, and you are called home to your eternal reward. Soon, you attend your first newcomer brunch in heaven, <laughs> name tags and all, along with a mix of other recent arrivals, some friends and cousins from way back, and even a minor prophet or two, you know, not the A-list just yet, but enough to give you a lay of the land. Once seated at your, at your table, you notice across the table someone who has a certain biblical, if not even apostolic, look to him. And when you see the name tag that says, Hello, my name is Thomas, you get the same way that you did when you were in the airport and you saw someone from a TV show you don't even like, but you wanted to meet anyway because he was famous. And you think to yourself, and then you say, Is that, are, are you doubting Thomas? And then you begin to reach for your smartphone in your pants pocket, and then you realize that there are no smartphones in heaven. It's about then you realize that there are actually no pants in heaven either. <laughs> but, but before you go farther down that road, you notice the expression on his face. It is the expression of someone who has had to explain this one away for millions upon millions of times, and he goes, you know, I'm also called the twin. <laughs> Thomas has been unfairly named. We have been raised to, him, raised to think of him as doubting Thomas, because what, what does he do? He says... He will not believe. He doubts the reality of the resurrection until he has seen Jesus and touched his wounds. But let's not forget that the only thing that sets Thomas apart from the other disciples is that he wasn't there in the room when he first arrived and did the same thing. He showed them his wounds. He let them see exactly what, what he is blamed for not having seen. We don't know where he was. He could have been out caring for a relative. He could have been uh, lending a hand to someone on a boat. He might have just been going out for a cup of coffee and look who he missed when he came back. Because when he does, he returns to a room filled with people who saw Jesus, who saw his wounds. And yet they expect him to believe, sight unseen, what they saw with their own two eyes. Thomas, of course, is us. Thomas is all of us who, who didn't walk beside Jesus in first century Palestine, who didn't go through the agony of watching him die, and who didn't then have the surreal but life-changing experience of sitting beside him in those weeks before Easter, I still just wonder what that must have been like. Those of us who are asked not only 
to live ethically, and to love wholeheartedly, but also to believe that the reason for all of it is that this man descended into the grave and then returned. And you know, we make it even harder when we turn it into an if-then proposition. Now, Jesus did say to Thomas, do not doubt, but believe. But when we take a simplistic view of both doubt and belief, then, then what happens is something generative and expansive gets downgraded to a deal breaker. And, and having a deal breaker with God strikes me as a very bad idea. You're either filled with 100% belief, no questions asked, or you, don't, you can't possibly have any faith at all. Or you're just an unbelieving skeptic, and any forays into mystery and belief can't really mean that much. It's kind of odd to think. I mean, think about this. How many of you, show of hands, have always 100% been in the belief category, never a doubt, never a question? Raise your hand. Raise them high. Nobody? Okay, I saw one or two. It's okay. All right. Other side. Who, at, you may raise the other hand if you wish. Have, it is nothing but doubt. There is nothing to be believed. That is it. That is all there is. No hands. No hands. Okay, right. So let's think about this. Can you imagine that this middle place where clearly uh, we're pretty much all there would be forbidden territory? I think this place is precisely where we are supposed to be. This middle ground is, it is um, this middle place is honest and authentic and actually the most generative for a creation of faith that can grow with us our whole lives long. Instead, we have either-or thinking, that if you doubt, you don't believe. That has made us perpetually insecure in our relationship with God and produces religion that is fearful of anything that would suggest doubt or uncertainty or, or even free thinking. The worst sins of religion get committed when that need for certainty is brittle and unyielding. Thomas Merton writes that this rigid belief can't be all there is, as if an un unloving, unenlightened, dogged submission were enough to make someone a person of faith. There, he writes, we find no light of faith, no inner illumination by the, of the mind by grace. That can't be what Jesus meant by belief, because there's just so little life there and not the love that, 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 that speaks to us of where God calls us. Faith that fears doubt, that grits its teeth and wills it away doesn't strike me as being faithful at all because now it's all about will and not about grace, which, yes, is a pretty good sitcom title. I never even caught that joke until I was writing this sermon. Will and grace put together. D doubt can be an act of profound faith. When the writers of the Psalms, 
Or when the weary Israelites got mad at God, had they lost their faith? No. They had such an intimate and real relationship with God that they did the most natural thing under stress. They got irritated and they got angry with the one who they blamed. Now, we think they were a little bit off the mark, but that isn't the point. They were mad at someone who was very real to them. When we are in a living relationship with something that is unknown or uncertain, then doubt is something that comes with the territory. A faithful life, I'm not saying it's all about doubt, at least I hope it isn't, And it isn't just jumping from one leap of faith to the next. Rather, it's a growing comfort with moving through the dark. Learning to trust the grace and love of God when certainty and clarity of vision are hard to come by. If we we could doubt just a little bit more, we might cultivate a deeper humanity as well. I mean, think about this. Think about when you are in a heated conversation with someone who not only feels strongly about something, but will not allow any doubt, will not allow any conversation, will not let anything in that threatens the barriers of that uncertainty. In order to do that, we have to we have to cut something off from our own humanity. And there's really something tragic about that. And there's a lot that we could stand to question. We could question our faith in money a little bit more. We might question our, pow- our faith in power or in our unspoken, or our unspoken faith in privilege. We should love ourselves as God loves us, but also doubt our faith in ourselves just a little bit, our will to make it all happen, because that keeps us from accepting the grace of God that really heals and transforms us. To Merton, that kind of doubt is perfectly compatible with true faith. Yet it isn't just compatible with faith. I would suggest that this kind of doubt is actually fuel for faith. I don't don't mean a permanent skepticism, and I don't mean just reading our faith through the lens of culture and just calling it all junk. No, I mean releasing our white-knuckle grip on certainty, which a little bit of doubt helps us to do so that we can fall back upon the grace and love of God. Thomas had a chance to get a head start on that, to form a faith on the certainty of love and grace rather than on what he thought of as objective evidence. What then might Jesus have meant when he said, do not doubt but believe? While Thomas didn't exactly pass with flying colors, he didn't fail either, any more than any of the other disciples. 
failed. What Thomas did do was to integrate those things that he had seen with both his eyes and with his heart as he turned back towards Jesus. Yes, he needed to touch the wounds as all the others had. But it was also something that happened that was there in the presence of Jesus. In that presence of love and companionship, grounded on their mutual affection, grounded on their relationship. There with Jesus, who he could touch, embrace, and love. It was there that the vision, what he could see, that the touch, what he could feel, reached its way all the way to Thomas's heart. Merton says this about the depth of faith. It is the incorporation of the unknown and the unconscious into our daily life. Faith brings together the known and the unknown so that they overlap. Doubt, then, is fuel for faith. To have doubt is to have a living relationship with the unknown. And faith, according to Merton, means integrating the known and the unknown into a living whole. Integrating the known and the unknown into a living whole. Doubt is a gift. But what we do with that matters. We can certainly use it as a catalyst for disengagement or simply rebuilding the world around our own willpower. Or we can see doubt for the gift that it is as a refining force that helps us to fall back into a deeper and more life-giving relationship with the one who created us and loves us and sustains us. Amen.